Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this weekend. Thank you for the joy it's been to be together, learning from your word and enjoying each other's company. Father, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you teach us things that we can know by no other means because you reveal things that we need to know in your scriptures. Please reveal things to us now as we look at this passage and help us to understand them and respond rightly to them. By your spirit, we pray this to glorify Jesus. Amen. When my son was about three years old, one day he ran out of his bedroom and said, Mummy, there is a birdie in the bedroom. Now, it's the kind of thing that parents get quite regularly. You know, uh, there's a dinosaur in the backyard, there's an elephant in the cupboard, there's a birdie in the bedroom. Jenny was quite patient, replying with, Yes, Joel, is it a toy birdie? No, Mummy, it's a real birdie, a colourful birdie. Neither the front door nor the back door was open, and the windows all had fly screens. There was no possible way that there was a birdie in Joel's bedroom. But Joel was very persistent. And so Jen finally, to stop the kind of charade going on any longer, finally walked into his bedroom. And there, sitting on the ceiling fan was... a rainbow lorikeet. What? To this day, we still can't explain how a rainbow lorikeet came to be sitting in Joel's bedroom. We think the only possibility is that there was an old, boarded-up, disused chimney. But that's a hard way to get into the house, down the filthy chimney and squeezing through a little gap in the disused... There's no other way. They say seeing is believing. So we tend to trust our sight perhaps more than any other sense. But do you think seeing is the most trustworthy way you can know the truth about your world? In this talk on Colossians 3, I'm going to challenge you to build your whole life on a reality that you cannot see. So we're at point one. Since then, you have been raised. And if you grab your Bibles, let's have a look at those first four verses again. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. <coughs> Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I suspect this is one of the most amazing statements in the whole Bible. And we, we hardly notice it. But do you realise what we've just read? This verse is speaking to people as though they've already been raised into heaven. Paul wrote this letter to Christians who were still very much alive. And, and they were living on earth in Colossae. But Paul is addressing them as already raised with Christ in heaven. It's all about being united with Christ. When you become a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus and Jesus puts his spirit in you. 
And those two things unite you and Jesus very profoundly. How profoundly? So profoundly that the Bible can speak about you participating in things Jesus did. Paul used similar language earlier in the letter. Let's go back there just for a moment up on the screen from Colossians 2, 11 to, 11 to 12. In him you were also circumcised in the, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Jesus in baptism and raised with Jesus through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. It's the same kind of thing going on, isn't it? It's the same logic. If you are united with Jesus by faith, then you share in those events that Jesus did. And the very first verse in our chapter, chapter 3, says that when Jesus was raised to heaven, you were raised with him. If you are a Christian, your life is so closely bound up with Jesus, that this passage says Jesus is your life. It's what verse 4 says. Now, what is really clear is that this reality is a hidden reality. Paul says it in verse 3, your life is now hidden with Christ. And that means even you can't see your true home in heaven with Christ with these eyes. But this leaves you and me with a very interesting challenge. If you follow Jesus, the most, well, important thing about you cannot be seen with human eyes. See, I want my relationship with Jesus to define my life more than any other thing. I want my true home in heaven to shape my life more than anything else. But that means that I cannot see with these eyes the most important thing that I want to base my life on. We keep thinking that the truest things in our lives are the things that we can see with our own eyes. But the Bible keeps telling us that there is a more trustworthy source of truth. The truest things about me I can only see by revelation. From God. And that is why, as I mentioned yesterday, you need to watch more good magic. These are the guys to watch. Pen and Teller. You, you've got to watch more magic. See, um, these guys are a very famous uh, magic act in Vegas, and they are a great reminder that you can't always trust your sight. Watching good magic is just a really important reminder that your senses are not an infallible source of authority. So your true reality right now, if you follow Jesus, is a hidden reality. You are already part of that hidden reality if you've trusted Jesus. But other people who don't yet trust Jesus, they can't see this hidden reality at all. They can't know anything about this completely hidden reality. So in a sense, it's a really good kind of uh, a teaching on what the Bible is doing for us. The Bible, in the Bible, God is giving you an advanced screening 
of what will in future be seen by every being on earth and in heaven. It is a reality now, but it will only be universally seen in the future when Jesus appears, when he returns. That's the future that's hinted at in verse 4, isn't it? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But why is the Apostle Paul going to so much trouble to show us this reality, this hidden reality, in advance? Why would Paul want to do this? Here's an opportunity for you to talk with the person next to you. The question's on the screen. There it is. Why is Paul going to so much trouble to help you see something that is hidden? You've got 30 seconds. Why is Paul going to so much trouble to help you see something hidden? Paul wants us to understand this hidden reality so we can make wise life decisions based on the truth about ultimate reality. Not just by what we can see with our own limited vision. God reveals this important reality now so that we can live lives that match our true reality status. And so we're at point two, put to death. Um, have you, there's a great motivational saying to get you out there exercising or that kind of thing. It goes like this, there is no such thing as bad weather. Can anyone finish it? There is no such thing as bad weather, only down the front, only inappropriate clothing. There it is. Well done down the front. Great work. There's no such thing as bad weather, only inappropriate clothing. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to use that inappropriate clothing metaphor to talk about the Christian life. As Christians remember their true home in heaven with Christ, the earthly behaviours that, well, there's some earthly behaviours that need to be put off like inappropriate clothing for your new location. And there's other behaviours that need to be put on like really appropriate clothing for your true home. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. These inappropriate clothes are fairly obvious, aren't they? Sexual immorality, that's pretty much any sexual behaviour outside of the God-given relationship of marriage. Impurity is behaviour that is not pure in Christ. Lust and evil desire, terms describing our inner desires when they are not in line with God's desires. And greed, well, that's about wanting it all for ourselves, isn't it? Selfishness on steroids. These behaviours seem to be heavily dominated by sexual desires. And it's a good reminder to us that our sexual desires have been messed up by sin. And they can often be a long way from God's good plan for sexuality within marriage. And so you can see in verse 6 that you can understand why it makes God angry when sin has taken our sexual desires so far away from his good plan of marriage. We need to get rid of the old clothing, friends, because it's inappropriate for citizens of heaven. We need to put these behaviours to death and grow in Christ because those behaviours don't fit with our new home. 
And it's not just sexuality where we need to take action. Have a look at verses 7 to 10. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And have put on a new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. It's really helpful to remember that we have all lived in these old clothes before. We've all lived in these earthly ways before Jesus intervened to save us. We've all been struggling sinners, walking in the ways of the world, every one of us. I'm talking about you, and I'm talking about me. But when Jesus saves us, it's time to get out of the old clothes, to put off the old behaviours that just aren't appropriate for our new home in heaven with Christ. The list of behaviours in verse 8 and 9, it's mainly about sins that damage relationships with others or damage others in relationships. These are everyday relationship killers. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. Followers of Jesus need to work at putting these things off because they just don't match who we are anymore. They might have matched who we were, before Jesus saved us. But now that Jesus has redeemed us from these sins, these sins don't reflect our true identity anymore. I've been trying to teach my 19-year-old son responsibility. He of the birdie at age three is now 19. And trying to teach responsibility, you know, you give him lots of chores. You say, your chore is to put the bins out. And then you realise the bins haven't gone out. He was always a bit hit and miss in his attitude, and it wasn't great. And and the more rules I laid down, the more angry I got with him, the less it seemed to work. So I tried a counterintuitive approach. I took all his chore responsibilities off him and said he never had to do another chore. I told him, you just need to choose what kind of adult you want to be. Do you want to be a man who lovingly serves others or not? What kind of adult do you want to be? He changed overnight and started doing chores that he wasn't even asked to do. Started doing chores before he would be asked to do them. Can I ask you some similar questions? Who are you? Are you united with Christ? Is your true home in heaven? Who we truly are needs to shape the way we live. When Jesus saves people, the change is like a whole new person. Remember Paul said that we died with Christ? That was the decisive turning point. Jesus' death was the death of your old self. And Jesus' resurrection was the birth of your new self. Now, do you notice in verse 10 that the new self is still being renewed? That's interesting, isn't it? We are all still works in progress. But how do you think Jesus is doing this ongoing work, this progress of renewal 
that right now he is working in us. You want to make the most of this last question because this is the last question on the whole weekend. So maybe quickly move and sit next to someone clever. No, 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 don't do that. Um, Just enjoy chatting about this question with the person next to you. Go for it. Okay, I'm guessing that you just nailed that answer. I reckon you nailed it. Verse 10 says that it is through knowledge. God is renewing his people from our minds out. As we read God's word and set our minds on the things above that the word of God is teaching us, our true identity is is dominating our thinking. Our true home is dominating our thinking. And we are being taught how to live out the behaviours that are appropriate for who we now are in Christ. And did you notice that Christians are being renewed in knowledge of something? Knowledge in the image of their creator. (coughs) Way back in Genesis, humanity had the privilege of being created in God's image. We know from Genesis 3 that human sin, human rebellion has tarnished that image. But as God steps back in to renew his people, the people of his creation, he is restoring people to the image of their creator. And how do you know the image of your creator? He's invisible. Well, it's not just by his revelation in the Bible, but Jesus has also perfectly revealed the creator. That's what we learned earlier in the book, isn't it? Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God is renewing us in the image of the creator in the same way he's doing everything else for us. By uniting us to Jesus, who is the perfect image of the invisible God. And so as we put off the old behaviours and we put on the new behaviours, we look more and more like our Lord Jesus. And we are growing more and more in the image of our creator. You know, as we look more and more like Jesus, the old external divisions, the the old divisions that, well, divided us the wrong way, they start to fade. Look at verse 11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. When we look more like Jesus, the old distinctions that used to divide us racially or religiously or even along lines of status or class, horrible, isn't it? Those old divisions, as we become more like Jesus, we look less like those old divisions that divided us. And they're less defining of who we are and less dividing us on the wrong lines. Our new basis for unity is Jesus himself the one who unites all Christians in himself, he who is all and in all who trust him. Well, that's the, uh, that's the old inappropriate clothing that people in Christ need to put off. Then Paul turns to the new, very appropriate clothing that believers in Jesus need to put on. So we're at point three, clothe yourself. As Paul turns to address the new behaviour to put on, He addresses Christians in very privileged terms. Have a look at um, the first half of verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Let's stop there for a moment. God's chosen ones, holy and loved by God. These are incredibly privileged titles. 
They were actually precious titles given by God to the Old Testament people of Israel, his precious chosen people. How could Gentile Aussies like you and me possibly deserve precious titles like that, that really only Israel had the privilege to have? The key, as always, is being united with Jesus. See, Jesus is the one true Israelite, isn't he? He is the one true Israelite who rightly takes those titles, chosen, holy, loved by God. He's the only Israelite who ever really deserved those titles. You and I don't naturally deserve them. But when Jesus saves us to be his people, he shares everything that he has with us, even exalted titles like those. Back in 2014, Queen Elizabeth launched a new British naval ship for the first time. It's on the screen. You can have a look at it. As Queen Elizabeth smashed a bottle of Scotch whiskey over the bow of the HMS Queen Elizabeth, she said these words on the screen. God bless her and all who sail in her. In that statement, there is a clear recognition that the fate of the sailors is very much tied up with the fate of the ship. What happens to the ship happens to the sailors. Where the ship goes, the sailors go. If the ship gets in trouble, the sailors are in trouble. In fact, the sailors have the privilege of, uh, well, being identified by the name of their ship on their naval uniforms. So close is the identification, so close is the unity between sailors and their ship. Throughout our passage, we keep seeing again and again that the relationship between Jesus and his people is similarly so tightly bound up together. Where Jesus goes, his people go. What Jesus receives, his people receive. The titles Jesus has been given are titles that his people also share. Can you see it's all about being united with Jesus? So what is this new behaviour appropriate for those who sail in Jesus, if I may put it that way? Verses 12 to 15. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. You know how the old clothing that we were told to put off was all about relationship damaging behaviours? Can you see what the new clothes are like? Relationship building behaviours. It's it's, the new clothing is all about good things that maintain and improve good relationships. Now, I think you know how nice it is to, be, to relate to someone who is compassionate and kind and humble and meek and not domineering, but patient with you. You know how nice it is when people bear with you. You know how nice it is when they bear with you rather than turning on you. You know how beautiful it is when people forgive you 
when you stuff things up. I actually experienced this a few years ago spectacularly at uni church. It was orientation week, which is the week where everyone sort of comes to uni and the colleges, oh, it's all a bit crazy in the colleges in orientation week. There's all these initiations going on. There's a lot of paint thrown around. There's, there's haircuts that have been given by non-qualified hairdressers. <laughs> And so um, at church on Sunday night, we get these new students turning up, and they're, they're very clearly new students. They're covered in paint, and they've got crazy hair. And so as I introduced myself to a new first-year student a few years ago, I said, I can tell that you are a new first-year because of the paint all over your clothes and that stupid hair dye that you've used on half your hair. He said... You are right about the clothes, but I was born with the hair that way. Oh dear. His hair has two colours because of a birthmark on half of his scalp, and I have just gone and called it stupid. Great moments in pastoring. I had accidentally treated him horrendously. But he responded with grace and forgiveness. He pointed out my error so graciously. And then he forgave me so willingly. That is the kind of behaviour that promotes good relationships. Now, incredibly, he wasn't even a Christian at that point of time. He has since come to faith, come to faith in Jesus. I conducted his wedding a few years ago. And he is now training for full-time gospel ministry. And I could have stuffed all of that up. And yet somehow God gave him, before he was a Christian, the ability to forgive me for treating him horrendously. Now something interesting happens as we get further into this chapter. It becomes clear that we are not just being addressed as individuals. We're being addressed as a community, a body of believers who are together united to Christ. Have a look at verses 15 and 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. One of the traps that Christians in Western countries often fall into is to read the Bible like individualists. What is it saying to me? What do I need to do? But right here we need to challenge that and think with a more communal mindset. What do we need to do? We are a body of people united in Christ. And the way that Christ leads his body, his people, is through his word. The command in verse 16 is to let Christ's word dwell among us as a community of believers. Can you see that Christians need to teach and admonish one another? It doesn't say make sure the preachers teach and admonish you. This is about all of us taking responsibility to bring Christ's word into our fellowship together. 
Now this weekend, Jenny and I have loved seeing the word of Christ dwell amongst you and we can see your love for Christ's word. But please don't let Jeff and Warren and Marty be the only ones who teach and admonish in this body of believers. How can you personally bring God's word into the family? There are lots of ways that you can do it. You could, I want you to think about that in a bit of your own time. But I want to draw your attention to one particular way, because it's, we often forget this way. It's the thing that Paul draws our attention to. It's in our singing together. Isn't that interesting? In our singing that we teach and admonish one another. Do you realise that's one of the main reasons why Christians sing? Christians sing to let the word of Christ dwell amongst us so that we can teach and admonish one another. Is that why you sing? This is perhaps the clearest verse in the whole Bible on why Christians sing. And it's all about teaching Christ's word to one another as we sing to our God. Is that what you think you're doing when you sing in the body? You are not just singing for yourself. You are singing to teach others. As we finish this section about the kind of behaviour appropriate for people united with Christ, look at how broad the last challenge gets in verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I hope you've got the message. It's all about Jesus. And he desires to shape every part of our lives every day. So please let him keep doing his good work in you by keeping his word in the midst of your gathering, at the centre of your whole community. I think this weekend I hope you've seen that God has been very kind to his people, personally calling us to salvation in Jesus personally calling us to a life of true value and personally calling us to understand in advance the great hidden reality of everything he's done for us so that we can base our lives now on that important truth. Please don't take these wonderful blessings for granted. Let the truth of who you are in Christ And let the truth of your true heavenly home shape every day of your life. Let's pray. Our Father, we're again very thankful to you because you have done it all and we are just receivers of your kindness. Our Father, we thank you that uh, in uniting us to Jesus, we get to share in everything he has done for us. Thank you so much. Our Father, we pray that you will keep doing your good work in us as you renew us by renewing our minds in the image of the Creator. (coughs) Father, please keep doing your good work. Please keep your word at the centre of this church family. Please help it be not just Jeff and Warren and Marty who bring the word and teach and admonish. Please help us all to take that responsibility seriously and to teach and encourage and admonish one another. Father, we pray that we might live for our Lord Jesus 
every day of our lives as he keeps doing his good work in us. Please help us to do this, to bring glory to him. Amen.